Good evening. Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church. This a uh, Good Friday. We call this Good Friday. And have you ever paused just to think about that for a moment? Good Friday. Before I begin and before anything is said, what makes it good is a good God. The only one that can be called good. It's not about you and I, because we're not that. It's not about my deeds, because they're not that. And it's not about this place or this world or any collection of us. If any of our righteous deeds, none of those can be defined as good. But it is a good God, a good Savior, a good Trinity that had a good plan because of our horrific sin. And that's what makes it Good Friday. But as we approach this day and this night, let me challenge you, challenge us, to not make this clinical, educational, historical, fictional for some of you, or just same old, same old. Heard it many times. It can't be that. Tonight, we need the Word of God to paint us a picture I paint us a picture of God's plan of salvation that had to be this way. Not plan B, C, D, or F. This is plan A, and it always has been. And as I paint this picture, or the Lord paints it through me, I want you to just go on this journey again this week, this day, as we approach this Sunday, and remind yourself of why this had to happen. This should be personal, very personal for you and for me. And before we do that, let's pray to the one that is good. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we love you. We glorify your name. We're reminded that this day is not about us, although we benefit. Eternally, we benefit. We who are in Christ, we who, who have repented and believed, we who who have been called, we who have been drawn by you to the Son, who have been cut to the heart, we benefit, eternally benefit. We're redeemed, but this was for your glory. This is because of your praise, because you are the King of glory. We praise your name. You're mighty and awesome and powerful. Your deeds are perfect and righteous, and they've always been that way. They always will be that way. We praise your name, that you and your Son are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We praise you for that. Humble us tonight as we study your word and it does convict us. It will convict us, every one of us. I pray for the souls in here who have not yet repented and believed, who may have heard the gospel, who maybe have thought about it. They've intellectually processed it, but they have not come to the end of themselves. Bring them to the end of themselves tonight. Only you can do it. Save them tonight. And for those of us who are, are your sons, who he knows and we know him, chosen, redeemed, sanctified, justified, this is true for us. I pray that tonight can be a resetting. Tonight can be a rededication, as every day should be. But as you've called us, and we will celebrate this evening, you've called us to remember. I pray that we remember tonight all of it. We remember the pain, the suffering, the wrath, the horrific day that this was, and yet how wonderful it was. 
I pray that you help us to remember that tonight through your word and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. I've entitled this very simply, The Price That Was Paid. And I've had to hyper-focus on just a few verses. And I say that with all seriousness tonight. Not a joke. But in all seriousness, the elders tasked me with these verses. And to lead up to this, I think we know our Lord went through a lot before we get to these verses. And just a very quick review. He spent all night up with his apostles, emotionally struggling, knowing that they would deny his name. Knowing that they would pretend they didn't know who he was. Knowing that they would betray him. Knowing that they would run. And how did he know that? Because he's God Almighty. And he wrote it. He knew what was going to happen. He washed their feet, told them of the hope that they have in eternity, promised his coming, shared with them the Last Supper, giving them the symbolism that we will celebrate tonight to remember what he was going to go through. He warned them of what was coming. He pleaded with the Father through the evening, knowing what was coming, not because he, he was afraid of the pain, not because he, he was not the man maybe he thought he was. It's because he understood that he was going to, for the first time in eternity, take on sin. And not his own, but yours and mine. The sins of all who would believe on him. And that because of that, there would be a separation, one that he had never felt before. Many men had been crucified, and many would be crucified after him. But none like him. None bearing the load that he would bear. And this is what leads us to this. And as we know, he took more than just a beating. He was nearly beaten to death. A Roman scourging, as many of you understand, is brutal. Beyond brutal, it was invented for the sake of brutality, for the sake of agony, for the sake of evil. And near death, our Savior carried a 200-pound cross as far as He could with all the strength that He had and clung to it knowing what it would achieve and having you in mind on every step. With every drop of blood, with every searing pain that went through His body, He had you and your sin and my sin in mind. And as we approach this evening, as we approach this afternoon rather, in this evening for us, when we get to this particular place, Here's where we're going to focus. I have highlighted these, these verses. This is now three hours into the crucifixion. And our Savior has already gone through so much. I won't highlight those things, but you can see some of them as we're going through. His arrival from Golgotha and the things He said and the things that have gone, he's, he's gone through, the things that fulfilled prophecy, the things that He did because He's God and He's Savior and He's merciful and he's gracious. And then as we approach these last few, this is where our text will lead us today. So as I, as I bring you to the text, think of this and try to visualize this as we go through it. So Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to start, as you can see, in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabakatani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, 
This man is calling for Elijah. And one of them once one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. These, these bit of texts that we have, just a few that we will read in conjunction with other gospel accounts, will give us a clear understanding of what's happening in this three-hour period. These verses cover a three-hour span. And you may be thinking, why hasn't he given us more? Why can't we see more? This is in God's divine forbearance and understanding, in his predestined under des- desire. This is what he wants you to know, and this is what he wants you to see. So just consider this. The very few things that we'll hear from our Savior and the very few things that we'll see from our Savior must carry a lot of weight. They must have a lot of impact for you, and they must have a lot of impact for me. So let's dive into these for just a moment. So the darkness over the land is the first thing we see. So verse 45, read that again with me. Here's what it says. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. You can see from this slide, that's 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. Three hours of darkness, and the Greek word here is land or earth. There's debate as to how far and how widespread this darkness was. Well, we do have some extra-biblical historians who have spoke on this. One of them, Fliegen, who's probably the earliest of them, or at least the one that we have the earliest uh, recording of. He's a Roman historian who's not a believer who wrote this. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen, and then there was an earthquake. Now, he's just recording things for the Roman Empire. He's not connecting this with anything supernatural. It's just odd. It was just different. Kind of reminds me of when people see and read God's Word and they try to qualify that or understand that with something that is just happenstance or maybe something that's in a cycle or something that's just part of this world, but nothing supernatural. Before we go any further in this text, all of this is supernatural. The whole thing is supernatural because it's divine. It's supernatural and it has to be because this does something, what we're going to read, this does something that only a divine and supernatural God can do, and that's to rectify, redeem, cleanse, and make white as snow your sins. That's supernatural. That's divine. And only God can do it. So as we read this text, please don't look at this in Try to work this out in your head as some sort of a logical understanding. This is supernatural from the jump. All of it is. And as we look at these, there's other historians that all debate about this. These are the four most famous of them. And some of them debate. It's kind of interesting. We look at Africanus and Thales. Africanus argues with Thales about this. We don't have either one of their writings. We have... Uh, his writings, and this is, as you can see, much later, but he gives us quotes from them in their debate. And in their debate, he talks this way, and I'll just read a little bit of this. Africanus stated this about Thales, Thales, who believed that this was connected in some way and it couldn't have been a, an eclipse of the sun because of the time of year. 
Here's what happened. He stated his objection to the report from Thales, arguing that an eclipse of the sun cannot occur during the full moon, as was the case when Jesus died at Passover time. The force of the reference to Thales is that the circumstances of Jesus' crucifixion were known and discussed in the imperial city as early as the middle of the first century. So this was a known event. This was supernatural and it was odd. He goes on to say the fact of Jesus' crucifixion must have been fairly well known by that time to the extent that unbelievers like Thallus thought it necessary to explain the matter of the darkness as a natural phenomenon. They were arguing about it back then, just as people argue about it today. But as we think about that, I don't want you to debate that in your mind. We know that this is divine and God put it there for a reason. Here's what MacArthur says about this. Luke, in his gospel, by the way, all four gospels include this, Luke uses a word, eclipio, which means to fail utterly, talking about the sun. It's as if he turned the sun off. This is an eclipse, some say, but an eclipse in the middle of the month, which is the time of the Passover, that's impossible because it's full moon in the opposite side of the earth. This is a supernatural darkness. This is a divine miracle, and it is God's first commentary on the events there. His first thought about this is what he's saying. Darkness in the Bible is a symbol of judgment, obviously. God's salvation is spoken of as light. God's judgment is spoken of as darkness. Hell is even called called outer darkness. And God was affirming by the darkness that the cross was judgment. The place of the severest, most comprehensive divine judgment. Then and there on Jesus Christ. And since God only judges one thing, that is sin, it is a judgment on sin. A judgment on your sin and a judgment on mine. As we approach this text and consider these few verses, it should have been you. And not just for a few hours, for eternity. It should have been me, not just for this moment in time, but through eternity. My sin put him there and my sin held him there. And if you didn't exist, mine alone would have done that. For his glory, he would have done that. Judgment clearly is associated with darkness. I came across this passage, and this passage is referencing Israel's judgment, their pending judgment that God would bring about through the Assyrians. But notice the text. Amos says it this way, Shall not the land tremble on this account? Their sin, just like mine, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all that rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. Notice this. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Nobody connects this directly with the cross, but it's hard not to. Look at the rest of the text. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. Chills you, doesn't it? And the end of it like a bitter day. This is a beautiful day, but it's a horrific day. Our Lord was pleased to crush His Son for us. Darkness covered the land. Darkness covered the land, and it shook because judgment was coming. Judgment like we'd never seen in human history. And will not again. This was an epic day. Cataclysmic day. And our Lord knew what was happening. He was well aware what was happening. He wrote this. His words, his very next words we see, 
this discussion of a divine separation. Look at verse 46. I'll bring it up here. And I'll give you the Matthew and the Mark here. The Matthew is his Hebrew and Aramaic. Mark's is Aramaic entirely. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? What an interesting choice of words. This is weighted. This is deep. This goes deep. What was he saying? Well, the very next few words in the text, we have people misunderstanding him, certainly. But what is he referencing here? What's he talking about here? And if we look at these in the two, certainly there was some reason why they may have been confused. But we know what he was doing. I pray that you do. He was making you and I think, where have I heard this before? Where has this come from? Where have these words been seen before? And here's where they've been seen. 1,000 years earlier in Psalm chapter 22. Why don't you turn there? I've brought up verses 1 through 3 on the screen, but I'd like you to go to Psalm 22 with me. Psalm 22. Verses 1 through 3, as you turn, and it's on the screen, says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our Lord said these words, connected himself with these words, not because God isn't good, not because he wasn't one with God, but because at this moment, when darkness came, judgment was being unleashed for our sins, and he was bearing it. For the first time in all of eternity, he felt this. When we go back to the garden and we understand why he would ask for that cup to be passed, why this cup of wrath to be passed, it wasn't the pain and the suffering. That's bad enough. This this is eternal. This is what he was born for, but this is heavy. And when we consider this text, look further. What was Jesus doing? Connecting himself with this, but to bring the sinner to an understanding that this was always the plan. Always the plan. Look at these verses with me if you're there already. Picking it up here in verse 12. Look at what Jesus does. He's taking us to the prediction of what he was experiencing. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Enemies, they open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions, mocking him. I am poured out like water. All my bones are all out of joint. This is a perfect description of crucifixion. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. A perfect description of what internally is happening, what it feels like, as they say. To be crucified. My strength is dried up like a pot shared. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Chilling prophecy. Ridiculous prophecy. Only God can write this prophecy. 1,000 years before Christ experienced it. Amazing. I count all of my bones there. That, but they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for clothing they cast lots. Our Savior was pointing us to just how perfect and powerful and sovereign He is. Amazing. Amazing text. But it goes beyond that. He mentions this and is experiencing this so that we're reminded also of what we see in Isaiah 53. Look at this with me. You don't have to turn there. 
But Isaiah 53 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And he was. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We're reminded of what Christ did for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this great exchange. But keep in mind the context of 2 Corinthians 5. I know I just have one verse up there. But Bereans, you know what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. That because of Christ, because of this event, but if you put your faith in him, you've become a new creation. You're a new creature. You're a whole different thing. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He goes on to say in verses 18 and 19 that this is about reconciliation. What does that mean? It means you were his enemy. It means the wrath of God was square on your forehead, on your shoulders, and you deserved it and so did I. And he rectified it. He exchanged his righteousness for your sin and he bore it. As the darkness came and the, and the, 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 the earth shook and he cried this out, this was happening and it was happening because of you and be, because of me. It was happening for his glory, but we caused it. We just sang that our name is written in his wounds. Did you hear that when you sang it? That our name is written in his wounds and in his pain. As you think about them driving the nails in his hand, as they used the flagrum, the, the cat of nine tails, to rip his body to shreds, that was you doing that. That was me doing that. You take this personal. That's what it is. And as we dig deeper into this, what does Romans tell us? God has done what the law could not, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son into the likeness of sinful flesh, likeness of it, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He did that. He accomplished that for you. He did that. Ephesians 2, 3 tells us that by nature we were children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. He did that for you, Christian. Galatians 3 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is the one who hangs on a tree. He did that for you and he did that for me. We see this continually through scripture from Romans 5 to Romans 4. And I just want to focus on 1 Peter for just a second for the sake of time. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter sums this up. He gives us a connection of what's going on in this moment as we focus on verse 46 Verse 45, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. He's quoting Isaiah 53. Peter knew what it was about. Peter knew that it was his defiance of the Lord, his rebellion that night that Jesus was dying for. When Jesus spoke from the cross and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, it wasn't just the soldiers he was talking about. It wasn't just these high priests, and it wasn't just the Sanhedrin and the scribes and the Pharisees, these common enemies that we know of. It was you and it was me, it was Peter, it was John. It was the apostles, it was his own mother. It was his own mother. She, uh, she realized, if you think of her prayer, when she, had, when she had Christ and she understood this incredible honor, she called him her, her Savior. 
She knew who he was. Do you think you're above this? You're not. Peter wasn't above it. I'm not above it. This divine separation was real. And it was impressive from an eternal perspective because you couldn't accomplish it. You couldn't do it and I couldn't do it. Back to the text. Matthew chapter 27, verse 47. Here's what Jesus says. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filling it with sour wine and putting it on a reeve and gave it to him to drink. The other said, "What will? Wait, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Now there's a lot of debate on this text as to whether or not they truly misunderstood him because this Eli is very close to Eliah. Eliah is how they would have said that in the Aramaic depending on if they were hearing that in Hebrew or in Aramaic, if Christ said both. Between Mark and Matthew, we have both. There are some who think they legitimately misunderstood. I don't think so. I think they were mocking him. Continuing to mock him. Making fun of him and maybe potentially even his cousin who had already been decapitated for the name of Jesus Christ. It is possible that this just continued on in the humiliation And Christ was saying, Father, forgive them too. It's possible. But what we see here is Christ asking for something. They're going to say here that they were going to give him sour wine. And what's interesting is we look to John's gospel and he says this. After this, right at this moment, John gives us a little extra piece where Jesus says, I thirst. Interesting. Why is he asking for a little bit of wine? He had refused it earlier. He didn't want the stupefying drink because he wanted to feel every bit of pain. He wanted to understand and have his reckoning and be sober-minded so he could say what he had to say and fulfill what he had to fulfill because he's perfect and righteous and he loves you that much. But now he wants a piece of this. He wants a drink of this. Why? Well, as we approach these next texts, I think it's for fulfillment as we see in Psalm 69, but it's more than that. It's not just to fulfill this prophecy. It certainly is. He's going to say something that's extremely important. And he's going to say it loud, and he's going to say it boldly, and it's going to matter, and it's going to echo through the ages and through time and space all the way to 2023. As we, we look at what's about to happen, Jesus was preparing himself. I, before this sermon, I began, I, I, I checked to see if I had water up here. And I wanted to do that because as you're preaching and teaching, Sometimes this comes in handy as you begin to lose your voice. And all I'm doing is standing up here and talking. Our Savior had been through this for 24 hours. And he wanted to make sure that you heard, and I heard, and it was recorded that it was certain what was about to happen. Because what is about to happen is a fulfillment of all eternity and all prophecy. A culmination of everything that's been written in the Old Testament and leading us to this moment. And this is what's going to happen here. Verse 50 says this, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice after taking that drink, and he says he yielded up his spirit. Now I want you to look at this text with me for just a second. This kraxis means literally, they use it to scream it out, to shout it out. It's a battle cry is what they use this for in the Roman world. With all that you have. So you think about when you've heard that. Maybe it's some sort of sporting event. Maybe it's uh, if you're in military and your sergeant has called you to something. Maybe it's your parent. Maybe, but this is to get your attention, to motivate you to do something. This is with all he's got. And I want you to consider the strength of our Savior. What he's gone through this night. He's not a weak, pathetic, 
shell of a man. Our Savior was strong. He was determined. He was gritty. He had intestinal fortitude like we wouldn't understand, and he understood what he was going through. Keep in mind, he was fully God, but he was fully human. If you can imagine how this would feel on your body, that's how he felt. But with the weight of your sin on top of it all. So what is he going to say? Matthew doesn't give us a lot of insight, but here's what we get from John. When Jesus had received the sour wine so he could speak and shout and with a loud voice, he says, it is finished. He said, it is finished. Luke follows that up after he says that by saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now what about that it is finished? To tell us die. Does that just mean I'm done? It's all over. Now it's deeper than that. Archaeology has discovered through some Egyptian uh, things they found in Egypt, God has preserved his word and some of the Greek words that were used at that time, that this was a contract. This was a fulfillment of a contract. This was, I've paid it. It's paid in full. I've satisfied the debt. Do you realize that only he could do this? Do you realize that the debt that you incurred, that you and I built up beyond measure, it's as if we're, we're offering what would require tons and tons of gold. We're offering dirt. We could never possibly pay it. Only he could satisfy it. And he said, it's all paid. Paid in full. And he shouted it through his pain and his suffering. Every time he said a word, Seven things that we know he said. He went through extra pain and suffering as he pulled up on those nails, pushed up on those nails, his shredded back, gripping through that raw wood. This had to be said, and it had to be said with boldness. It had to be said with courage. And it had to be said with determination so that you would know for sure what happened for you and for me. Take it personal. And then he said, I... Father, into your hands I commit your spirit. What does that mean? It means he did this. He yielded it up. Nobody took it from him. This is a very specific thing that we see in Scripture. Afakani, voluntary submission, chosen, his timing based on his divine will. What does Jesus say to these Pharisees in John 10? For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He does it, not us, not them, not the Romans, not the Jewish authorities. He did this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. They're one. God was pleased to crush his son, and he was, the, he was the one who had the power to take him back up again. Jesus says the same thing here in John 18. He says this in the garden, full control. Jesus the Nazarene, he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him in the garden as they were about to arrest him. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. We oftentimes miss this. Why would he do this? Why is this in here? To let them know who's in control. To let them know who's got the power. Later on, he'll say the same thing to Pilate. You only have authority because it's been given to you from above. I'm letting this happen. My father's letting this happen. This is my plan. Matthew chapter 26. Do you think that I cannot appeal as he's speaking to Peter just a little bit later in that same garden to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12,000 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which said this must happen this way? 
So let's just think about this for a minute. This isn't a pathetic Savior that didn't have control. He was in full control and he chose the whole thing. He wrote the whole thing, as I've already stated, for his glory. But because he loves you, are you beginning to see the picture of the mercy and grace and love that our Savior has for us? We who are unworthy, who are going our own way, who didn't do anything to pursue him, who didn't do anything to impress him, and we can't. And yet this is what he said had to happen because this is the way he was going to play it out. And as we go forward, Peter gives us this. We know the fulfillment from Isaiah 53, as I mentioned. But look at what Peter says in his first, his first sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up what? By the according to the definitive or definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was always the plan. You and your sin was always the plan. He was going to satisfy this, which you couldn't do. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. It wasn't possible for him to be held by it. We'll get there on Sunday. And then finally we see this. The veil is torn. Seems like an obscure thing. Matthew 27, 50. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Luke says it this way. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Mark puts it this way. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. With the centurion who, who was uh, facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. I find this fascinating. Right at the moment of crucifixion, he's saving people. At the moment of crucifixion, the gospel's being spread. At the moment of crucifixion, not just the, the, the thief on the cross who he would be within in paradise that day, but there were people witnessing this that said, this is special. This, we don't know this man's name, but he is acknowledging who this is. I truly believe this man is saved. You wouldn't say this after executing this man, a criminal's death. This was special. This was supernatural. He died for his sins too. This man may have driven the nails into his hands. We don't know. Into his feet. Amazing. As we think about this, earthquakes are the central theme of God's judgment going forward. This is not the last earthquake that this earth will see based on the Lord's interaction with this planet. Blessed be the God and Savior of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back. And when He does, this earth will shake. And I pray that you're on the correct side of God's wrath that day. But when we see this and this veil, what's this mean? Well, Exodus tells us about this veil. Look at verse 33. You shall hang this veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil. The veil shall separate you from the holy place, from the most holy. Nobody could go in there but the high priest. And not very often. It was a very sacred place. What's going on here? Well, we know from, from God's Word what's going on here. Hebrews 9 gives us so much clarification. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people, unintentional sins of the people. We see this from Hebrews. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Christ, 
holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. He doesn't need that. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once and for all, he offered up himself to tell us die, paid the price, full. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. Hebrews 10. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, believer. If you're in Christ tonight, you get to go right to the Father. You have access to the family. You've been adopted in. You are co-heir. You did nothing to achieve this. You did nothing to deserve this. You brought your sin, and he's given you this. When that tore from top to bottom, that's divine. No man could do it. So what does he tell you to do, believer? Draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. That's what we see. So let me finish this. There's got to be a challenge here for you. For you, believer, further on in Hebrews 12, go to there, Hebrews chapter 12. Go to Hebrews 12 with me. Here's what we see. We're going to end here. For the believer and the non, the Lord's going to challenge you. We have folks that's, that have come through this planet who never saw what we know. They never got to see the fulfillment of these prophecies. They, don't ha- they didn't have the full complement of God's Word like we do. But they were faithfully serving the Lord through the generations. And they accumulate into this great cloud of witnesses that have led the way for us. Given us direction. Given us an example to follow. And if that's true, at the end of chapter 11, here's what we see. Therefore, verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Since we are surrounded, believer, by so great cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You may not have lived your life the way you should, Christian, this week, this day, this moment. I don't know. It may be time for you to get back on on the right track. It may be time for you to start getting into the Word of God daily, multiple times a day. It may be time for you to repent, confess, Get back online and do what God's calling you to do. To run this race in this short time that we have. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, I'm going to repeat that, the joy that was set before him. What comes next? Glory, heaven, his reign? No. He endured the cross. He took joy in it. The Father was pleased to crush His Son. The Son and the Father are one with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that is in you. And you should have joy in serving Him because He had joy in suffering for you. Are you taking it personal, Christian? He endured the cross. He despised the shame and He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so are you because of Him. Consider Him who endured from the the sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, so that you can continue to do the work you've been called to, so you don't grow weary in doing good, so that you can continue to preach the gospel, this life-saving gospel, to who? To people 
like this. People like those who Paul, Peter was talking to. What God foretold, Acts chapter 3, by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. And what's the message you must preach? And I am preaching to any who are lost in here right now. Repent. You turn from what you were, give up everything else, sell everything else, get rid of all your gods, all your ideas, all your desires, all your priorities, and you turn directly to Jesus. As he convicts you because of this message, not mine, his. And as you put yourself in the position of that that soldier who saw all this and was overwhelmed with his own sin, he says this, repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Turn from your sin. Christian, preach this good news. That times of refreshing may come from the, the presence of the Lord and then he may send the Christ appointed for you. And we appeal to you, Paul says, to receive the, don't receive the grace of God in vain. In a favorable time I listen to you. In a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. Right here, right now. This was a horrible day, but it was good. Don't let this day pass you. Don't let it pass you if you haven't given your life to Christ. As He cuts you to the heart, and He will, and as He's drawing you to Himself, and He's gonna, you repent and believe. Believer, Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. Victory's coming. But we don't, we don't get to enjoy that victory if we don't understand this day first. We don't get to enjoy it. So I, I plead for you, and I plead for the believer in here, let this be your message this season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for what you've done. This is not in us, and we couldn't do it. This is you. We praise your name for it. We love you. We care about the sinners that are around us. I pray that you'll give us the conviction to care about the sinners around us, those who are lost, that we deliver this message as you have, that we explain it as you do in your word, and, and we understand it so that we live it, that we proclaim it with confidence and boldness, and that we can be a part of this incredible harvest that you have as you save sinners. We pray for that tonight. We thank you for Sunday. We thank you for the resurrected Christ. We thank you for the incredible hope that it brings us and the, the fact and the true fact of our hope of eternal salvation and life eternal. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.